Good morning. Good to see you all. Um, in Luke, beginning in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus moves his ministry from Galilee and he makes his way towards Jerusalem, where, as we know, he will die. He does this on purpose because that's why he came came to die. So we see from chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, uh, that he makes his way to Jerusalem. Uh, the focus has been, up to this point, on his, te- on his uh, I should say, on his miracles, a lot of his teachings, of course. We have the Sermon on the Plain there in chapter 6. So it, yes, it's his teachings, but we see a great focus on, on, on the miracles and, and on demons uh, and them being chased away and people's lives being changed physically. And, and emotionally, spiritually speaking. But now what we'll see is from this point on, mostly we see Jesus' teaching. And Jesus is focusing in on his disciples, on the twelve, and on the others following him to, uh, to, to give us and to preserve for us, as Luke has done in his gospel, the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the, there's the focus on that. The locations of where he goes are not revealed. In fact, Luke is not necessarily interested in a chronological point by point by point as some of the other gospel writers are, nor is he concerned about where Jesus was. In fact, a couple times he says, in fact, here he says in chapter 10, uh, verse 38, now he was traveling along, he entered a village. He doesn't tell us what village. Uh, Later on in chapter 17, he enters another village. And, And in chapter 11, verse 1, he prays in a certain place. And passing through from one city to another, from one village to another, we see in chapter 13, So Luke is not giving all the cities. The interesting thing, though, is that Bethany, we know that he's in Bethany because Mary and Martha had a home in Bethany, and we know that from John chapter 11. So if Jesus just left Capernaum, and he's all of a sudden, the context puts us in Bethany, we know that he's out of chronological order. Luke is not making a chronological statement here. In fact, let's get a little context on these women. We're going to meet Mary and Martha uh, move over, if you would, to the next gospel to your right in Gospel of John in chapter 11. Uh, we learn a lot more about who these ladies are. Luke doesn't give us a, a background on them. But let's, get, let's learn a little bit about them before we get into their, into their home and see what happened this day. John chapter 11. Jesus comes, uh, John chapter 11 has Jesus moving towards Jerusalem. Bethany is just about two miles from Jerusalem, it's right near the Mount of Olives, this tiny town. In chapter 11, John 11, verse 17, Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. The context is Lazarus, a man named Lazarus, who is the brother of Mary and Martha. And the three of them lived together in this little town of Bethany. It, it appears that although Jesus had no place to lie his head, he had no place he called home. And when the man says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. I don't even have a place to lay my head at night. I don't have a home. It appears that if Jesus had any place that he could call home, it would have been Bethany, in the home of Mary and Martha and his good friend Lazarus. We hear, see there in verse 18, now Bethany was near Jerusalem. It says about two miles off. Verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary. In this context, Lazarus has died. You know the story where Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is dead. Uh, He's been dead for four days. Jesus comes to town after four days, has taken his time on purpose. Um, But we're just going to get a little little feedback here, a little insight as to who these ladies are. Verse 20 says, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, notice she calls him Lord. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So she knows something about Jesus. Even now, she says in verse 22, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. This is a good Jewish woman. She knows her Old Testament. She knows her Hebrew scriptures. She calls Jesus Lord. She knows that Jesus is God. Jesus said to her in verse 25, He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Lazarus is dead. He seems to be telling Martha, Lazarus believed in me. Even though he dies, he's going to live, Martha. There's nothing to fear here. And he, he goes on in verse 26, and he says, And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Never die in a spiritual sense. You see, folks, when we die as Christians, we just die out of this body. 
We just move on from this body of death into a body of life, of eternal life. I mean, that's pretty good, I think. Anyone scared of that? And you might be, so I don't want to make you feel silly. But I do challenge you that if you're afraid of death and you call yourself a Christian, maybe it's time to begin to pray about that. Lord, give me no fear of death. You've conquered it. If death is just moving on from this body, sign me up, right? I'm ready to get out of here. Now, if you're in your 20s, you're in your prime, you know, you're enjoying the body now, it's going to go away. (laughs) You'll get to a point where you're going, this body is just not working the way it once did. You'll be ready to release. Really, we're just getting to know this lady, Mary and Martha. She, that is in verse 27, that's Martha. She said to Jesus, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, Son of God even him who comes into the world. So we know something about Martha. She believes that Jesus is the Christ. So we're not going to demonize Martha today from Luke's gospel. We want to make sure that we know that Martha knows exactly who Jesus is. Moving on, we can see that uh, Luke was not present at this situation. When Luke opens his gospel in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he informs everyone who's reading his gospel. He said, look, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. And he writes to a man whom he calls most excellent Theophilus. And he writes to Theophilus, which means lover of God, verse 4, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, I bring that up just because um, we know that Luke, at least it seems evident that Luke has interviewed Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, tell me what happened at your house that day. Luke wasn't present at the birth of Jesus, and yet he gives us this great, wonderful account of the birth of Jesus. That means he must have interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. of Jesus must mean he, he interviewed Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. He would have interviewed all these people, perhaps even having interviewed um, a Simeon and Anna or people that knew them. He knew what happened, and though he wasn't there, he was a historian, so he's telling us that. So I believe that he spent some time with Mary and Martha. We know that he was with, with the Apostle Paul. In fact, when he writes the book of Acts, Luke, he writes also is the author of the book of Acts. He travels with Paul. We see him visiting Jerusalem, perhaps all the people that Jesus came in contact with, or many of them at the very least. He conducted interviews. And we know, as I said, that uh, um, Bethany is near Jerusalem, and in the chronology, Luke isn't there yet. Why do we bring that up? Because the last story Luke told us, we looked at last week, was the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a guy coming to Jesus saying, what can I do to have eternal life? You'd expect Jesus to rattle off, well, you're saved by grace through faith alone. But he doesn't. He says, what does the law say? And the man quotes because he's a scribe. He's a lawyer. He knows the law. He says, well, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, spot on. Now, that is the way of salvation. As you know, love God, love your neighbor. You do those things, you don't need Jesus. No need for Jesus if you can love God perfectly and love your neighbor as yourself. But the big problem here is we can't. Therefore, we all need Jesus. But he never says that. He's leading this lawyer to, to try to understand that. Now, if the lawyer said, okay, I'm pretty good at loving God, and I'm good at love, if my neighbor is my wife and my children and those people that live next to me, I'm doing okay. But Jesus doesn't say that. He tells him that your neighbor is anyone. And he gives that story of the man who got beaten almost to death. He's bloodied there in the street. And even the highest of the high, the Levite and the priest, they walked by him and said, ooh, don't want to touch any of that. That might make me unclean. Don't, I don't have time for it. I've got to get home to dinner. Whatever their excuse was, it was a lame excuse. And yet a Samaritan stops by. I hated Samaritan, and he gives everything to help this man. And then Jesus tells the man at the end, tells the scribe, go and do likewise. So he leaves it on a note of, hey, go and be a really, really good person. And you can get eternal life. Some of you might be trying to do that. Some of you might look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm pretty good. You bob your head kind of like I'm doing, you know, bobbing. All right, I'm all right. I'm better than the next guy. 
If they're going to heaven, I'm certainly going to heaven. But you see, here's the problem. You ain't any good. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm new here and you don't know me. No, I know you. I smell you. You stink like the rest of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, folks. All have sinned. Just Even if you just did it once. But no one's just sinned once. We sin over and over. We are, say it class, wretched sinners. We're not just sinners. We are wretched sinners. We're the worst of the worst. You see, when you understand that, you understand the grace of God all the more. If you think you're not that bad, you're not going to understand the grace of God to the nth degree. That's where Jesus left it. That man who said, go and do the same, there in verse 37. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go love your neighbors yourself. To which the man must have gone out and thought, well, I can't do that. So the next story that comes along is about a woman who's doing a lot of good works. Before we get into it, let me just remind you, one of the great things about Luke's gospel, I had to write a paper on it at seminary, was how Jesus treats women in the gospel of Luke. It's a beautiful, beautiful study. You don't have to write a paper on it. Just go through and underline the women's names. I'm just going to rattle them off a few, few at a time here. We meet Luke depicts kindness toward women. Elizabeth, again, the, the mother of John the Baptist. And Mary, Anna, Peter's mother-in-law, heals her of a... Of a Fever, the widow at Nain, whose son had died. The sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's home. She came and touched Jesus. Everyone wanted to go away. Jesus forgave her of her sins. Here, Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha. The woman in the parable of the lost coin. We'll read about her later. The widow in the parable of the unjust judge. And the widow who offered her last two cents. You see Jesus taking women here and treating them with great kindness. Whereas the... The religious leaders of the day didn't care much for women. Treated them as second-class citizens on a really good day. Not Jesus. Because women are not second-class citizens. Women are not less than men. They have a different role than men, which some in our society say, well, that's inferior. No, it's not. Having children is not inferior to men. And just so you know, just so you know, never thought I'd have to say this, men can't have babies. Just want to make sure you know that. In spite of what you might be hearing in the news, men can't have babies. Is that hate speech? If it is, so be it. Goodness. Did you ever think you'd live in a world where that has to be clarified? And yet, here we are. Don't gripe about it, folks. I mean, I understand. But it's just an indicator that the end is upon us. God told us these days were coming. There's no point in griping about them. Believe me, I've got a mirror in front of my face. Lance, shut up. Stop griping. Jesus treats these women with great tenderness, as all people should be treated, especially women. And today, when we we take our stand and we say women can't be pastors, it's not something we made up. It's God's Word. It's not us taking a stand against women. It's taking a stand for God's word. And when you hear people like Rick Warren, who's out there on this huge crusade to say, those are secondary issues. Where does the Bible say that's a secondary issue? I don't see primary and secondary issues in the Bible. I see the Bible is God's word. And if God said it, that's a primary issue. We see women in the Bible like Mary Magdalene. In chapter, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, he speaks of Mary Magdalene, who was a woman who had demons in her, seven demons. They were counted, apparently, by Jesus, and he cast them out. She was never the same. She followed Jesus. She was one of the witnesses to his resurrection. We meet Joanna, who is the wife of Cusa, who was a steward in Herod Antipas's place. In fact, Luke, no doubt, learned what he learned about Herod Antipas from Joanna and her husband, Cusa. We learn about her. We'll see her again in chapter 24, verse 10. We meet Susanna in Luke chapter 8, 1 to to 3. We don't know anything about her, but that she was a contributor to Jesus' ministry. That says everything. 
Later, we'll see in John's gospel, we will see in John's gospel that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also a follower of Jesus. So that's Mary Magdalene, that's one Mary. Mary, his mother. And then there's the other woman that even the Bible says is called the other Mary. Apparently, her first name is Other. Other Mary. How'd you like to be the other Mary? Matthew 25 or 27, verse 56. She's the wife of a man named Clopas. She's also the mother of James the Less. That's not James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but the other man of the 12 named James and of a man named Joses. We meet her also in Mark 15, 40. She, this other Mary, is also with Mary Magdalene at the tomb on resurrection morning. The other Mary. So we got Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, the other Mary, and we're going to meet in Mary today of Bethany, four Marys in the New Testament. Pretty common name, apparently. We also know Salome, who was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. She was also at the tomb on resurrection morning. We meet her in Mark 16, 1 at the tomb. Martha is an Aramaic name, and it means mistress, a head of a household, female head of a household. Perhaps her husband has past and she is now in charge of her household. She's brought her sister Mary in to live with her as we also know from uh, John's gospel that Lazarus lives. Now that's just, in my opinion, I mean, I don't want to bore you to death with names, but that's kind of a way through the Bible to understand some of these names. I've always liked the names. People that get their names recorded for all of history. When you put these together, there's Mary Magdalene, there's Mary the mother of Jesus, there's that, that, that other lady named Mary, Mary of Bethany, oh, she had a sister named Martha, Lazarus. It helps you. When you know these people, when you get into heaven, you're going to say, I want to meet the other Mary. I want to meet the other Mary. Well, where's Magdalene? I want to meet, I want to talk to her. Oh, I thought there was just one Mary. I didn't know there were four Marys in the Bible. You want to be that guy? Walking around, everybody in heaven making fun of you. Yeah, that person never read the Bible. He didn't know anyone here. It's good to know the people in the Bible. Do you think God recorded their names for nothing? No, it's primary if it's in the Bible. So anyway, I just wanted to introduce you to some of these ladies that are treated so well in God's word. So let's get to our text. Verse 38, as they were traveling along, he entered a village. We know that village is Bethany. And again, this is on the heels of the good Samaritan. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. So apparently Martha gets word that Jesus is coming. Now, when Jesus is coming to your house, it's not just Jesus. There's at least 12 guys, and some other women we know are there, and there might even be some others. So you have to make dinner for a lot of people. No doubt she and her sister have gone out to the market. They're getting things ready. They're going to welcome him into her home. It's her home. She might have some wealth because she has her own home. Verse 39, it says she had a sister called Mary. Again, that's Mary of Bethany. You might write that in your Bible there, of Bethany. This is a different one than the other ones. Martha welcomed her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. Okay, so it's time to feed, let's just say 15 people. Done by one people? By one people? By one person? Is it going to be more expedient that two people work together? So just imagine, ladies, it's two, it's two ladies in your home, and you're going to make a feast for a bunch of people, or maybe there's a feast at the church, and someone's going to help you. You're preparing the meal back there, and it's just you. You're slicing and dicing, and you're, you're cooking and everything, getting together. Where is Cheryl? I'll pick up my wife. Where is Cheryl? The preacher's wife, we expected that she would be here. Where is she? This might go on for five minutes. 20 minutes. Are you as angry at five minutes as you are 20 minutes later when she's not there? How about an hour later? You perhaps have gone into a frenzy of demonizing a particular person that should be there. Where are they? Why am I left to do this all by myself. And then maybe you step outside the kitchen, you look into the other room over here, because if the kitchen's over there in our church and the fellowship's room right over there, you look in and there's Cheryl not helping you in the kitchen. You know where she is now. She's not stuck on the side of the road somewhere. She's in there listening to the speaker. How dare her? Have any of you ever been there? You're angry. You need someone to know how angry you are. 
well, is Martha doing something wrong? She's serving. You got to feed a bunch of men. You got to, you have to practice hospitality. That's a first century um, act of charity. You, you could not do it. In fact, it's commanded in scripture. I even put down a few passages that show what it's, that Christians are called the service. Paul says, be constantly practicing hospitality. Romans chapter 12, verse 13. Constantly practicing hospitality, welcoming people into your home, making sure they're uh, comfortable and well-fed, have their drink filled to the brim. The writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect to show hospitality even to strangers. And I love what he says in Hebrews 13, too. For some, without knowing it, have entertained angels and didn't know they were angels. Strangers. We look at strangers and we go, I don't know them. I'm not giving you any of my food. I'm not sharing my drinks with you. You know, they might just be angels. They might not be. Which might show that, uh, it doesn't might. In fact, it's pretty clear that it shows that angels look like humans. And do angels have wings? Never see one in the Bible with wings. They may fly through the air, but they don't need wings to do that. Um... Do they smell a certain way? Are they beautiful? Do they go around singing everything they do? You know, angelic voices, do you know nowhere in Bible do angels sing? Nowhere. Now, if you say, well, I know where, where they sing. It's in Job 38, verse 6. Actually, the Hebrew text says they just shouted there. So they shout real loud. They shout real pretty, apparently. No, they don't sing. They don't have a certain smell. They do appear to be male. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Peter says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Well, that kicks me out. (laughs) I'll serve them, but I don't have to like it. No, you have to like it. Or at least you have to do it without complaining. And then uh, it's the task of elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 speaks of elders needing as part of our character that we are hospitable. And of godly women, a godly woman who is to be put on the list to be cared for in her uh, her widowhood, Uh, if she has been good to strangers and shown hospitality, she can be on that list. So hospitality is a good thing. What our passage will show today is that hospitality is inferior to one thing, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, make sure you hear me. If you've tuned out, make sure. You do know that I know I'm not Jesus. You know that I know I'm not Jesus. If you don't know that I know I'm not, I know I'm not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Lord God Almighty, just a preacher. But when I have God's word in my hand and I am preaching to you, you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Insofar as God's word is being preached, you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Therefore, where you are right at this moment, this is the greatest possible place that you could be. Doing the highest possible service unto the Lord that you can be doing. Not out there in the foyer working security. Thank you for the people that are working security. Not outside having taken someone from the church and counseling them because they're in need. No. That's inferior. Not out there in the kitchen preparing a meal for the post-church picnic. That's inferior to you sitting in that seat where you are right now, doing nothing except listening to the words of God at the feet of Jesus. Doesn't feel that way though, does it? Sometimes it just feels boring, tiring. And folks, let me just offer this. That's part of your service sitting through what might be boring to you, a bad back that you're struggling with, a a, a lack of sleep last night or for the previous week, maybe trying to hold back that cough that you don't want to cough, or a sniffly nose, or rattling that piece of paper that mint is in that you can't wait to get in your mouth. You know, those of you who are doing that mint thing, real here, let me just show you what it's like. (laughs) 
When you do that real slow, it annoys the heck out of people around it. Do this. Pull it open, stick in your mouth. <laughs> By going slow, you're not fooling anyone. They know what you're out to, and they're behind you going, I wish they'd just rip it open. And that's another thing sitting still is. It's about dealing with the annoying people in front of you. It's about standing there singing, listening to the person in front of you or near you. You don't, you don't know where they are. They're behind you. They're singing at the top of their lungs. They can't sing. And all you want to do is look back and kind of... <laughs> so that they'll see you and they might go, oh, gosh, am I singing terribly? They're probably thinking, oh, wow, they must really be enjoying my voice. <laughs> That's church. It's all part of it. Or that little kid that has to get up every single week to get a drink. You know, because listening to God's word is very cumbersome. It makes you very thirsty. That's a joke. If you need a drink in church, there's something wrong. That's what church is. That's what sitting in church is. Some people don't come to church anymore. They want to sit in their home. They've learned that sitting back there, I'm talking to you people on camera now, get to church. Sitting at home is more comfortable. You can pause it. (laughs) You can go to the bathroom on your own. You don't have to get dressed. You don't have to leave your bed. You've got coffee. We don't let people bring coffee in here. It's not a coffee and donut thing. But you can do that at home. It's about coming together and sitting at the feet of a man that God has called to preach his word. It's the primary thing. It's the greatest thing you'll do all week. Now, that's not a commentary on Lance Waldy. That's a commentary on his word. Here's what it does for me, to me. Lance Waldy, you better have a word for these people. You better have a word for God's people. You better start on Monday, get it ready, and be working up to the very moment that you open that word and you give God's people the nourishment they came for. And I do, I take it seriously. And I want to push, I want you to understand it's important that you sit still, we sit still, and listen to the word of God. I found an old sermon by my friend Sorin Prodan, who is one of our pastors in Romania. He preached this very sermon four years ago from this pulpit. I had forgotten it. Uh, My wife reminded me of it, so I went back and listened to it. He's such a great preacher, he's such a great man. And I was inspired by it. You might say, does the preacher ever get to listen to sermons? Yes. My whole life is spent listening, reading, and studying. I've got the greatest life ever. And then I get to, with the overflow of what God has given me, give it to you on Sunday mornings. It's important. That's what Mary's doing. Mary gets that. She could be out there preparing the gravy and getting the bread all done. But she is apparently content that the meal be sandwiches, finger foods. She's going to sacrifice the preparation for sitting at God's feet. And there, she could do it literally. And so she did. Meanwhile, Martha, verse 40, but Martha was distracted. The word means to be pulled away. With all her preparations, You've been there, distracted by life. You tell yourself, I don't have time to sit and read the Bible. I learned from my youth minister when I was about 14 years old, if you're too busy to spend time with God alone, you are busier than he intended for you to be. Would you please memorize that if you don't already? If you are too busy to spend time alone with God, you are busier than he intended for you to be. But you don't know my schedule. I got to get up at this hour. I got to go here. I got children. I've got a wife. I've got a spouse. I've got business to do. I come home, I'm tired. And your point is? If you are too busy to spend time alone with God, you are busier than he intended for you to be. Preparations. You got a business to run. You got a family to run. How many things are out there that can pull us away from simply opening the Bible and reading it? Coming to church and sitting still and listening. I've had more than one family come here and meet me in the foyer or talk to me elsewhere. One guy said this. These were his words. He said, we, we want to visit. He said, but we're not here for sermons. 
We don't need another sermon. We homeschool our kids, and they learn the Bible every day. We don't need another sermon. We want to work. You know, I, I answered him that day very sarcastically. I know, that's very unlike me. And I said, you know, I ate dinner yesterday. I don't need any more dinner. I don't ever need to eat dinner again. I ate dinner yesterday. And he just kind of looked at me all quizzical. I said, sir, you need a sermon every single day of your life. You need to sit still on Sunday morning on that unique day and submit yourself to the preacher of the church where you believe God is leading and teaching. Sit still and listen. We don't want you working. I told him, I said, I don't need you to work at the church. I said, we got plenty of people taking care of things. You come, sit still, and get over yourself. I didn't tell him that, but I thought it. I didn't say that. Had another guy say the same thing, except if they weren't homeschooled, they were Christian school. Our kids are Christian schooled. They learn everything about the Bible they need to know. They don't need any more sermons. Just show us where to work. It's a self-righteous way of thinking. Just work. Working sometimes is a lot easier than sitting still, isn't it? You work, you can check that off. That felt good. I work. I cooked that meal. I did this. I went to the church. I mowed the lawn. I washed the windows. Give me something else to do. I'll give you something else to do. Show up for church on Sundays. Sit still. Sit tight. Well, there's people that need counseling. No, they don't. We're counseling them right here, right now. The Word of God counsels. Don't need individual counseling. Sit still and listen to what God is telling you that day. If you believe God is sovereign, whatever problem you brought into this auditorium when you walked in today, you believe that God's Word will address it. And so it does. And so here's Martha. She's distracted, all her preparations, everything she wants to do, and so she's done. I can just see her taking off that apron, wadding it up, throwing it down. She doesn't go to Mary. Mary, can you, can you please help? No. She goes to the big dog. She came up to him and said, Lord, will you please tell Mary to come help me? I don't have enough help to prepare these for these kind men you've brought. Do you think that was her tone? And that's not what she said anyway. Lord, I have to tell the story. I've told it before, but my wife, uh, years ago when we first moved back from Dallas to Houston, um, we, were, uh, we were planting the church. We were just gathering to see if we were even going to have a church plant. And there was a group of people that I'd come in. I'd, I was taking over the Sunday school class at Cypress Bible Church, and they were all so nice. And here's the guy that's been studying for four years. He's going to come in to plant this church. And we were all over someone's house. I think it was the Super Bowl. And uh, we're talking and we're getting to know everybody and it was time to go. Now, we had little children at the time because it was the year 2000. Daniel was four, three or four, and Brooke was two or something like that. And, and uh, Cheryl said, let's go. Okay, no problem. So I go out to the Suburban. We had a nice big Suburban at the time and, and I'm gonna load the kids. And, and I go out to the, to the Suburban and it's locked. Now, back then, you didn't have automatic locks. It was the dark ages. Car's locked and lo and behold, as I'm out there, it starts to rain. So I walk back into the house, and I knock on the door, and I said, uh, dear, can we please leave? Do you have the keys? No, not at all. That's not what Lance does. Lance comes in, opens the door to most people I don't know. Cheryl, let's go. House goes silent. Our new pastor in town Let's go. The kids are out here. I'm holding two kids in these things. It's raining. Where are you? My guess is that's Martha here. Lord, do you not care that my sister, not Mary, that my sister, probably pointing at her, has left me to do all the serving alone? To which Jesus responded, Mary, get up and go help your sister. No. I would imagine the teaching at that moment ceased. Oh, we've never seen Martha like this. She's at the end of a rope. Folks, we've been there, haven't we? You, you've yelled at, at the Lord. You've rebuked God. Lord, I'm 13 years old. Do you not care 
that I'm being abused by my mom's boyfriend? Do you not care that my uncle has sexually hurt me? Lord, do you not care that we live in poverty? Do you not care that my father is dead? Do you not care, Lord? What is your problem? Do you not care, Lord, that I've been a year without a job and I can't find gainful employment? Lord, do something. It's a rebuke of God. You don't have to just be prepping meal to understand Martha here. Lord, she doesn't call him Jesus. She knows he's God. This is the same woman that told him, I know you are the Messiah who has come into the world. Same woman from John 11. Now she asks the Messiah, kind of the same way Peter did back in Matthew 16, 22. When Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to be resurrected on the third day. To which Peter responds, uh, not under my watch. Uh, Jesus, we're not going to do this. Probably put his arm around him. Come over here, Jesus. Uh, maybe you don't understand, but I'm a tough fisherman. No one's going to hurt you as long as I'm here. To which Jesus said, Gee, thanks, Pete. No, he looked at him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Satan, he calls Peter Satan. Because Peter had the devil's work in mind, not God's. He doesn't do that to Martha. He doesn't want to humiliate her. And by the way, I don't think that he humiliated Peter in front of all the others. I think he did it in private. Maybe he did it in front of the others. But here... When she says, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then she commands him, you, Lord of all creation, you who makes no mistake, you tell her to help me. You ever done that? Here's what you're going to do, God. My husband has cancer. You're going to get him into MD Anderson, and you're going to get him the doctor that's going to fix him. And he's going to be back in my house with me in six months. That's what you're going to do, God. I'm going to name it and I'm going to claim it. You're going to do it, God. You ever done it? Someone ever asked you to pray that way? Tell him, no, I don't pray that way. I pray the Lord's will be done. God knows that he wants my husband or my wife or my friend to be healed. He already knows that. I don't even need to ask him. What God needs me to do, or I should say, what I need to do with God. God has no needs, right? What I need to do is tell God, whatever, Lord. Whatever happens, I'm with you. Martha's not at that point. You tell her to help me. Now, in verse 41, I think it's the tone of the voice that, that we have to get straight here. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. Did he yell it? Was he angry with her? I would imagine, I don't imagine, I'm quite certain that while Jesus is teaching, knowing that Mary's at his feet, he knew what was simmering in the other room. And I think when Martha came and did what she did and made a fool of herself, kind of like I did that day, Cheryl, let's go. Cheryl just smiled like, you're digging your own grave, pal. <laughs> this double saying of her name I, I see nothing but compassion. Martha, Martha. Dear sister, Martha. You're worried. He doesn't rebuke her in front of everyone. He doesn't embarrass her. You're worried and bothered about so many things. As if to say, Martha, the meal is no big deal. You're concerned about things. I know your heart. I know what you're after. But you are concerned and worried. He uses the word worried and bothered about so many things. Let me ask you, is that you today? Did you come to church worried and bothered by, quote unquote, so many things? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's everything I talked about earlier. All the things you got to get done. I am. I'm not talking to you as if I've got it together. My whole life is a to-do list. And to-dos on top of the to-dos. I have to constantly remind myself, I can't add anything to what Christ has already done. I feel like I'm trying, though. Got to do this, got to do that. 
meet with this person, share with that person. Sometimes when I'm at the worst I can be, and I know I have to be at my best, uh, patient and, you know, like I was walking up to the house that day, and I was talking to myself. Be calm, be calm, be calm, be cool, be cool. Cheryl, let's go. Just comes out. I will tell myself, just be cool, Lance. God is on his throne. Be kind, don't snap. Just, and then you hear something else come out. Am I alone in this? Do we all not need Jesus? Martha is us. We are bothered, worried about so many things. And Jesus continues, Martha, you're worried about this, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part. And no, Martha, I'm not telling her to come help you for dinner. This part will not be taken away from her. That probably silenced the room. I doubt Mary was going, (laughs) see Martha? I don't think that happened at all. I think Martha in a moment got it together, as I got it together in that moment. Cheryl, let's go. Oh, gosh, I said it again. I've done it again. Another failure. When we were in Israel this past two weeks ago, I was exhausted before we left. And I I don't like travel. Didn't want to travel, didn't want to go. But I wanted to be in Israel and I wanted to go on the trip. I just, I just hate travel. I mean, I can't afford business class, so I got to sit on a bench seat with, uh, you know, with, with others that, that sometimes are larger than I am. <laughs> and I'm short, so I don't know how you tall people do it. Um, and we got to the, to the airport and I was already in, in full-out shepherd mode. You know, who's here? Got to make sure we count the people. Get them in there. Make sure everybody's here. Okay, got, got him in. Got him in. And I kept waiting. Okay, I'll get on the plane and I'll take a deep breath. <sighs> no, that didn't happen. I never do that on an airplane. You know, 14 hours later, we get to this, get to that. And everywhere you go, you're counting people. Got to make sure everybody's here. It's easy to lose people when there's 35. Counting, count them here. And, and Todd and I were working on it. We'd work at the end of the line. And, and everyone was helping. It wasn't just me or Todd. We're making sure everybody's there. And it's hard for me just to... to to get uh, to remain unstressed when I'm taking care of just my wife. You go to the mall or go on a vacation, you know, make sure that everybody's safe. My kids, when they were, they were small. So now with 35 people and everybody okay, you know, it's just the stress became phenomenal. Every night I would go back in my room and I would say, okay, I made it through without making a fool of myself again. You know, I didn't want to yell at a human. I, I yelled a couple times, Linda Love, you know, Linda Love. She's 86 years old. She, Linda, now come on, Linda. Linda's taking pictures. Linda was in no hurry, nor was she a burden to the group at all. She was nothing but a blessing, but she's like a mother to me. And so that was the one I've got a special, special eyes on, Linda. Come over here. Don't get out of my sight, Linda. You know, if I couldn't find Linda, where's Linda? Somebody got eyes on Linda, where's Linda? And she was, again, never a problem at the end of it. She was the strongest one of any of us. I come home sick as a dog. She's jumping tall buildings with a single bound. Wanting to go fly fishing again or something. But the point being is that I was always at that point of a Martha, worried about things that I didn't need to worry about. I'm not your keeper. God is the keeper. And I'm acting like I'm the big babysitter. But I was stressed. And there were times I wanted to say, everybody, get together, get on the bus. Stop your talking and laughing. We're not supposed to be having fun here. Be a terrible cynic like me. Get on the bus and let's go. Thank God I didn't. And I came home, I think, able to, to deceive everyone there into thinking that, yes, I am a shepherd and I only love everybody and I'm always kind. No, Martha came. Her true colors came out, as mine have on many occasions. And Jesus told her, Martha, Thank you for your service. In a sense, he doesn't say it literally, but thank you for your service. That's all well and good. Hospitality is to be practiced. But Martha, what you're doing is inferior to the primary. Sit still. Take your apron off. Come sit by your sister Mary. The Lord God Almighty is here. I'm teaching you the truth. 
Again, you know that I know I'm not Jesus. So when I say you're sitting at the feet of Jesus here, you're not sitting at the feet of the literal Jesus, but a shepherd called to do what God does. Speak forth his word. It's so important. I'm sad that so few think that it is. Not here at this church, per se. I'm sad that so few pastors make it their goal to preach God's word. I'm sad that if you're Roman Catholic and you go to a place where the the mass is done in, in Latin and they know you don't understand it, I'm sad that they think that that's somehow a worship service. I'm sad that some preachers think that 15 minutes is all people have to remember. It's not. We know it because you can stay on Facebook or social media for hours at a time. By golly, you can sit in church and hear God's word for an hour with an open book before you. It's so powerful. These words, what God has given us, they're the bread of life. She's over there trying to make the bread for the body and the bread of life, Jesus himself, is speaking. And he gave us his words and he inspired them and God kept them for us to feed on. Now, I didn't find any rest in traveling to Israel. I found a great time and some wonderful people. I find my rest and my, the power that I need to survive and to get through with these words in a little paragraph like this from Luke's gospel, from two women. I could have told the story, hey, there were two women, one worked too much, the other one listened to God's word. Choose the latter, let's pray and go home. But there's something about embellishing it. There's something about drawing in everything, other names of people. There's something about drawing in personal experiences from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, sitting still, listening and feeding on God's word. Is there not? If there's not, the problem is with you. Maybe the problem is with me. Maybe it's just a bad pastor. So I'll strive to be better, to give you God's word, so that when you come to church, it's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Lance, yes, but Lance speaking God's words. There's no desire to go out in the hallways and do anything else, not prepare food for the lunch afterward, not counsel someone in need, but to be here. Not talking, not passing notes, sitting still, doing nothing. Do you think God needs our service? He gives us that privilege. What God wants from us is to sit still, shut our yappers, and listen. One pastor I read, his name is Don Whitney. He says this, no spiritual discipline is more important than the intake of God's word. Nothing can substitute for it. There simply is no healthy Christian life apart from a diet of the milk and meat of scripture. The reasons for this are obvious. In the Bible, God tells us about himself and especially about Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God. The Bible unfolds the law of God to us and shows us how we've all broken it. There we learn how Christ died as a sinless, willing substitute for breakers of God's law and how we must repent and believe in him to be right with God. In the Bible, we learn the ways and the will of the Lord. We find in Scripture how to live in a way that is pleasing to God as well as best and most fulfilling for ourselves. None of this eternally essential information can be found anywhere else except the Bible. Therefore, if we would know God and be godly, we must know the Word of God intimately. I have been accused as a pastor of worshiping the Bible. So have you, by the way. You go to a Bible church, you must think the Bible is the fourth member of the Trinity. This book, I could drop in the trash. There's nothing sacrilegious about it if we just look at it as a book. It's a book with pages and print on it. We do not worship a book. This is a book, however, that contains God's inspired, inerrant word. It's not a book we worship. We worship the God that is revealed in this book. No more ridiculous discussion about a Bible church studying, or I should say, worshiping the Bible. 
And by the way, if you think that's what we do, go read Psalm 119 and just watch David over and over talk about God's commands, his decrees. I meditate on your precepts, on your law. David must be worshiping the law. No. He is worshiping the outpouring of who God is through his law, through his precepts, which is what we endeavor to do. David wrote in Psalm 27, 4, I'm almost through. Hang in there. Psalm 27, 4, David wrote this. One thing, one thing I ask from the Lord that I shall seek. Here's what he asked, that one thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. One thing. Notice it doesn't say one thing I ask from the Lord that I will retire at age 55 with $5 million in the bank. One thing that I ask from the Lord that my health will be restored. One thing I ask from the Lord that my marriage would be great. Of course, David would have had to say that my many marriages would be great. One thing, one thing, and that one thing was that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my life and behold the Lord's beauty. The Apostle Paul says something likewise in Philippians chapter 3. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Notice what he said again before. I haven't grasped it yet. I haven't taken hold of everything that needs to be done, but one thing I do. Forget the past. That lies behind me. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. Here's this one thing. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wrote this from jail. He doesn't say one thing I'm after, my freedom again. One thing I'm after that I can join you folks and have a wonderful meal together. No. One thing, forget the past. Press on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Just like David did. That I may dwell in your house forever. Behold the face of the Lord. What's the one thing you're after? Is it meal preparation? Or things likewise? Or is it God himself? Mary of Bethany chose God himself. And she didn't care if there wasn't a meal. She was gonna sit at the feet of Jesus and take in the bread of life. One thing. Let's pray. Lord, may the one thing that we as your people strive after is you. You in the here and now and you in the hereafter. Knowing that this life is temporary. We strive to know you here. Longing for the day when we will be there. One thing. May the one thing not be raising our kids. May the one thing not be retiring and having a lot of money. May the one thing not be to have health restored if it's been taken away. May the one thing we strive after is to know you, to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May God bless you as you pursue the one thing. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy. Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.